0: Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Creativity. Here's how to get unstuck. I'm your host, creativity coach, Nancy Norbeck. Let's go. My guest this week is Rob Schwartz, journalist, music and film producer, entrepreneur, and son of the late Maury Schwartz of Tuesdays with Maury fame. Rob has founded a number of companies, both in Japan and the U.S., and has produced numerous film and music projects with international teams. Rob and I talk about his experiences in Japan and India and how travel enhances creativity and the role of listening in language learning and the influence of language on thinking and behavior. Rob also tells me about The Wisdom of Mori, his father's last book, which encourages readers to challenge stereotypes and find fulfillment in later stages of life. I think you'll enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Rob Schwartz. Rob, welcome to Follow Your Curiosity.
1: Thank you so much. Really happy to be here.
0: So I start everybody off with the same question. Were you a creative kid or did you discover your creative side later on?
1: Hmm. I would say that I was a creative kid. I mean, I didn't pursue anything in particular, but I think I had that kind of mindset. Early on, thinking about things in a creative way, I never sort of like fit into the mold of of a normal kid. I would say. So,
0: how did that manifest for you? Do you think?
1: Uh, you mean in later life, or or as well, a child?
0: When you were a kid, and did did your family encourage you, or were they kind of indifferent, or did oh they?
1: no, they were very encouraging. I think that uh, um, with me, it it was. Um, reasonably abstract. So I read a lot and I had a lot of ideas about, you know, maybe abstract or intellectual things. Actually, both my parents are kind of academics, intellectuals, so they encourage that kind of thing. And it's really funny because my brother was so 180 degrees the opposite. He's so amazing with his hands, taking things apart, putting them back together, just like an incredible mechanic, anything to do with your hands. He can cook, he can. And I was always just like head in the clouds, thinking about things abstractly and of course talking about them.
0: Isn't that interesting how you can grow up in the same house and be so different? Yes, yes. It happens so often. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you start to home in on your creative side?
1: It's um, a good question. Um, Probably started when I was in college, Um, had a bunch of uh, projects and uh, we were very political. We were very politically motivated, but I also had a bunch of creative projects, but it probably really took off. I'd, I moved to Japan right after university. So, you know, that's a whole new world. Everything is different. And I started to do a lot of creative things. I started to write. I became a journalist. I got involved in filmmaking. I got involved in music production.
0: So how did you end up with the opportunity to move to Japan?
1: Um, You know, I just wanted to do it. And uh, I worked for a few months, maybe almost close, I guess a year before I moved to save some money and yeah, I just picked up and moved there at that time. And I think probably even still today, it was pretty easy to move there and to get sort of a basic job, you know, teaching English or something like that. If you want to build a career and I did. Um, Then it takes more effort. Certainly anybody moving to Japan, I would tell them, you know, be prepared for a long haul. Don't think you're going to go to Japan for a year and really, you know, get a lot accomplished. And also be aware that you're going to have to learn the language. You can't really get by in English doing creative things. So if you're willing to make that commitment, I think it's it's you know, it's a great opportunity and it's pretty relatively easy to do once you decide you want to do it, right? For me it was just a decision, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is the plan. You study about it, you learn about it, you know what you need to do and then you get there, you know.
0: So had Japan always been a goal or is it that you knew you wanted to go somewhere and that just seemed like the right place at
1: the right time. It's funny because it's sort of like a little from this category, a little from that (laughs) category. Um, It wasn't always the goal. In fact, it wasn't really even the goal until um, probably right around the time I was graduating. But I had been in India in um, my junior year or something like that. And I decided that I wanted to explore Asia more. I studied a lot of I studied philosophy in university, but I studied a lot of Asian philosophy and I studied uh, Chinese and Japanese history. So I had that background. And then at that time, um, late 80s, early 90s, Japanese economy was really booming. So everything seemed to come together. It made sense to go there like these days, maybe not right this second, but a few years ago, people would go to China. Because the economy was booming and stuff, I think politically right now, that's maybe not the best thing. But you know, so it really shifted away from Japan in the last, let's say, twenty years. But at that time, Japan was really a place that was attractive for a lot of reasons. And it all sort of came together for me
0: well, that's cool. And yeah. I mean, both India and japan, it's 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 an interesting set of contrasts because they're both so different from being here. But they're also so different from each other.
1: Yes, yes, I could talk about that that, that for a long time <laughs> if you're interested. I mean, I'm not sure how much your listeners know. So just very briefly, I mean, India is very chaotic, right? It is a huge mix of cultures of their own cultures because basically in india each state has its own culture and its own language there's like 30 or 40 major languages in india and it's very chaotic and of course it's also a lot of different religions and people very attached to their religions very um you know observant and japan is pretty much the opposite it's very very organized and religion, not that it doesn't exist, but it's very much in the background. People are very focused on work and society. Um, This may not be so different between India and Japan, a little bit different, but you know, Japan is always thought of as this group society where people are so concerned about the group and they sublimate their individual interests. That's really true. And I could talk about that for a long time. In India, much less so. Indians are more individualistic. Um, than Japanese, closer to us, let's say, but also the social pressures in India are intense. So that's, a, that's the flip side of that. Very, very intense. And we could talk about that as well, if you like, yeah.
0: Wow. I have to think, because one of the things that I'm always fascinated by is how travel influences the creative process. Yes. And I have to think that both of those must have been eye-opening in a, in a creative respect and must have left a mark on you Absolutely.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I would agree with you a hundred percent. I mean, traveling in any way, even just out of your hometown is going to, you know, widen your perspective. But going to a different culture is just completely widens your perspective, opens your eyes to see things in a different way. And that's what creativity is about, right? Seeing things in a way that you're not used to seeing it or that you're not used to be showing it, shown it, or that, you know, is different and is the received, the received view, shall we call it, right? That's right. what creativity is about. So travel is absolutely, is going to give you a whole different perspective on the world and society and yourself. That's the thing. If you read great travel writing, that's the thing they always stress is that you find out things about yourself by experiencing things that are so different than yourself.
0: Yeah. So what, you know, if you had to this feels like such an unfair question because they're both such big experiences. But if you had to, you know, come up with one or two things that, you know, you got out of both of those countries, what would they be likely to be?
1: Oh, that is a that is a big question. <laughs> um, oh, wow. Uh, with Japan, I would say, I mean, in in respect to their culture, probably some discipline I wasn't that disciplined before I went there and they're an extremely disciplined people and disciplined society. Um, A a kind of delicacy. The Japanese treat each other with a kind of delicacy that is unknown in American culture. And, you know, if you're going to participate in their society and speak in their language, which I do, then you're going to have to learn that. You know, if you don't learn that, people are going to think that you're really rude. Basically, they they have a very polite, delicate way of of um, dealing with each other. Now, it doesn't mean that they're always wonderful to each other. That can be twisted in ways to be, you know, more that we're more familiar with, whatever, condescending or what have you. But on the basis of it, they have a really delicate way of dealing with each other. In India, it's something to do with the overall, wonder of the world and some kind of spiritual connection. Even if you don't take on their spiritual connection, you see so much of that around you that I think it's impossible not to take it on. And wonder of the world, not only spiritually, but the land is so rich and so diverse. You have desert, you have the Himalaya, which are the highest mountains in the world. You have oceans, you have islands, you know, wonderful rivers. And it's just an incredible country so diverse both culturally and geographically so i think that uh, that's you know that kind of spiritual connection and that kind of diversity of experience um is what you what i got from india
0: wow and i think there's a huge spiritual dimension to creativity too
1: absolutely absolutely i mean but that's we could talk about this all day that's <laughs> That's the interesting thing is like some people experience it as spirituality and some people don't, but I think they're talking about the same thing. There's some connection, whether you call it spirit or just to an idea or whatever, however you experience it, it's some kind of connection that's something beyond yourself right even if you don't consider yourself a spiritual person so then it comes down to language what words are you using to describe it but i think the experience is quite similar so in in essence i agree with you yeah
0: yeah and i think sometimes it's hard even to come up with the words to describe
1: it exactly exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Sure. sure sure yeah i mean it is hard to talk about creativity sometimes you know what is at its base what is creativity right you know, it's it's making something, it's creating. But where does that come from? Where does the idea come from? It's very hard to know.
0: You know. Right. I mean, those stories about, you know, and I, I can't remember which composer it was who said it. I want to say it was one of the Italian composers like Vivaldi or Verdi or one of the ones who starts with V, but I could be wrong, mm-hmm. that said, you know, I was just taking dictation. You know, like <laughs> it didn't come from me. It came from somewhere else and I just wrote it down. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I... I've had a moment or two like that, and it's the wildest thing ever. And I don't know how else to describe it. Right. You know, and I don't know how to describe it to anyone who's never experienced that. And if you have experienced that, I'm not sure I need to describe it to you. You know, exactly. It's, exactly.
1: It's, yeah. It's yeah. a
0: weird, weird place.
1: Yeah. 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 I understand that. I'm not sure that I've ever had that experience directly, per se but I can understand feeling that it's coming from somewhere else or that you are just the, the vessel that's recording it or what have you. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, so you went to Japan.
1: Yes. Did you
0: know the language when you got there?
1: I had studied it on a very basic level. So I maybe knew some very basic stuff, but it took a while. It took a while to learn the language. Some years. Um, I never studied. I just, listen to people and spoke and then people correct you and you hear them. You know, the key to learning a language, and I'm not sure if this is what your podcast is about, (laughs) but I can say it briefly, is listening, right? Is opening up your ears because, and and maybe we'll get to this later, but I'm really into languages and linguistics and we can talk about that. And I think that there is a big creative aspect to that as well. But learning a new language is means by definition, learning new sounds learning new words and new sounds. So you need to open up your ears to make those new sounds available to you. So that's the key to at least beginning to learn a language is, is opening up your ears, listening really carefully to what people are saying and then trying to imitate, trying to imitate them directly, like get it, you know, spot on, not just, you know, close. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, because you're a musician, you know.
1: You, I'm actually not a musician, but that's okay.
0: Oh, sorry. I
1: produce music. I produce okay. music. I ran some record labels, but I would never call myself a musician, no.
0: Because I've always heard that, you know, if you're musical, it's easier to pick up languages. And I and I think that that's well, really I think it's true.
1: Oh, I definitely think it's true because musicians you know hear music in a whole different way than non-musicians you can hear the tones you can hear the gradation between the tones and that's going to help you hear words and pronunciations and stuff for sure for sure and there is some without getting too abstract i think there is some confluence between music and language obviously Mm -hmm. language is you know got more meaning embedded in it music is more up to our own interpretation but they're both systems which are through sound, basically. And yeah, there is a there is a lot of meeting points between the two.
0: Yeah. And music is one of the few the few things where you're actually taught to listen. You know, most people are not <laughs> taught to listen.
1: Right. Right. <laughs> Especially in this society. Our society yeah. is about getting your point of view out there and making yourself heard as opposed to listening. And you know, it, it sounds kind of trite when you say it now, but You learn a lot more by listening than you do by talking. (laughs)
0: You really, really do. It's it's kind of amazing in a way that shouldn't be. It's sort of embarrassing when you start to realize how much more you learn when you really listen. Because we all think that we listen a lot more than we really do. Yes. And then when we notice the difference, you're like, boy, what have I been missing all this time? Because I thought I was paying attention and I thought I was really listening and I really haven't been.
1: Right, right. And I mean, that opens up a whole nother discussion about even when you do listen, how much do you catch and how much do you retain? Because, you know, there's so much stuff out there and our brain is going to whittle it down, is going to filter it to just a certain amount of things that we can, that we can latch onto, but for sure, listening is absolutely crucial. It's for learning, for learning languages, for learning anything, you know, it's crucial. And I mean, I have to say personally, for one of my, my, the ways that I look at people, when I meet somebody, that's the first thing that I try and observe to them about them. Are they really listening to me? Or are they just waiting for me to finish talking so they can talk, you know? <laughs> Right, because that's what most of us do. Well, I don't want to say most of us, but, you know, there's some people like that.
0: A lot of us.
1: okay. Okay. (laughs) Uh, About your superior wisdom. Well,
0: (laughs) well, and in fairness, I don't think we realize that. Right. You know, we're focused on what we think we need to respond with. And because we're focused on preparing that next comment, we miss a lot of what the other person's saying, because that's not where our attention is. Right. So it's not malicious. It's just kind of where we are.
1: I think there's two or three reasons. We could analyze why, why, what are the reasons (laughs) for that? And I think there's two or three reasons. I mean, I think at base, this is certainly American culture. Maybe it's endemic to the world at large now, But people want to get their opinion out there. They want to be heard. They want to feel like, you know, they're whatever, putting it out there or participating or whatever. And, you know, I understand that feeling, but maybe it's a little bit too dominant in our society, Mm -hmm. you know, that uh, and that that's about ego. That's about, you know, wanting to be whatever important present or what have you, you know. And uh, yeah, it's maybe a little bit overpowering in our society the way american culture has developed you know
0: i would agree with that
1: yeah much much less so in japan much less so not not non-existent but less so people are much more you know within themselves and participate in the group and you'll enjoy this it makes for very interesting discussions because you know Our discussions are like, you say something and I have to respond exactly to what you said, right? If I start talking about something else, that would be weird in America, right? But in Japan, that often happens. Somebody, you know, you're having a group discussion and somebody will make some comment and everybody, oh, they'll take it in. And the next person start talking, we'll just talk about something completely different, They won't respond directly to that person or feel like it's got to be, you know, a direct. They'll just take it, go off in the direction that they want to. So I'm not saying either way is better. It it Mm -hmm. definitely is weird for us as Americans, even as an American who speaks Japanese. But, you know, that's a cultural difference.
0: Yeah, it's it's about what you're used to.
1: Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So did you ever fully adjust to that? Does it still feel weird? if you encounter
1: that. Kind okay. Of thing. So now you're moving into territory and we can talk about this. We have to talk about the book at some point. We do. I,
0: we do. So Don't we'll, worry. We'll get, there. we'll
1: get there. But, but now you're getting into really, as I mentioned earlier, my sort of uh, um, love and uh, things that I'm investigating now. So this will answer the question of where's my curiosity leading, leading me. But um, language is, uh, how can I express this? is so much uh, defining the way that we think and the way that we react and even what we feel. You know, people who only speak one language think, okay, you know, this is tree stands for this object and you just put a bunch of those together and that's language that's so not it at all language is a complete worldview, it's a complete value system i mean not specific but general value system but it's a worldview, it really defines how we see the world so when i was in japan and i was speaking japanese You're thinking in a whole different way. If you really speak a language, anybody who speaks two languages knows this. You don't translate in your mind. You're just speaking that language. You're thinking in that language. So it's very natural for me to participate in a Japanese discussion the way that I previously outlined and not think like, oh, that's weird that he didn't respond directly to what that other person says, because you're in that Japanese context. You're in that Japanese language, and it's a different world. It's literally a different world. And this part, I actually wrote some essays on in Japan. You have a different personality. I mean, not completely different, but significantly different. I have a significantly different personality in Japanese than in English. I'm much more polite. And and that sounds funny, but it's true. It's true. It makes
0: a lot of sense because you're right that, you know, the, the language and the culture are so intertwined that, the culture informs how you use the language and that informs how you interact. And so
1: that's exactly, there you are. That's exactly right. And you have to remember, we're, we're talking a pretty extreme case, right? Japanese language and Japanese culture and English language and American culture are extremely different, right? If you have two languages that are closer, like English and Spanish, then the difference isn't so noticeable. But I think anybody who's truly bilingual would probably tell you something similar that they maybe have slightly different personality or they see the world a slightly different way, but Japanese and English is so noticeable because they're so different.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I love languages. I mean, we could talk about this for hours. And every language is, uh, you know, has its own way of presenting things and, It's so funny. I have this book that says like 10 myths about language, and there's a couple of them that people just can't believe, but linguists will tell you these really are myths. For example, one language is spoken more quickly than another. That's a myth. All languages are spoken approximately at the same speed. But if you hear a language you don't understand, it sounds like they're talking really quickly. Another one which I really love is that some languages are more logical. Than other languages. It's a complete myth. And how would you even go about establishing that? What language would you analyze that language in? Every language is a closed system and with inside of that language, it's completely logical. French linguists back like a hundred years ago were completely convinced that French was the most logical language. But of course, French was their language. Right. You know? Obviously they thought that. You
0: know? Right. I mean, I I took French in middle school and high school, and I took some Latin in college that nearly killed me. And, you know, what nearly killed me with Latin was that not only did you have to learn all of the different verb conjugations, but you essentially had to learn to conjugate nouns because you declined them and all of that. And, And it was just so stinking much to try to remember. Yeah. Yeah. But if you were an ancient Roman, it made perfect sense because, of, of course. course, it did. You grew up with it. You you know, yeah. it, it. you didn't know anything else. Right. And but it's so... not
1: a myth. Sorry to interrupt you. It's not a myth that some languages are more complicated than others. I mean, no, I mean, Latin and Russian, like, unbelievable grammatical declensions. And, you know, and then we have Indonesian, which doesn't even have a past tense. You know, there's just like <laughs> they can still communicate everything that we communicate mm-hmm. the other languages. They just do it in different ways. Right. But the grammar is, is more simple. Right. Right.
0: Right. No. But, but yeah, I mean that, that was not something I was prepared for in Latin, right. but you right. know, it, it had its system. I mean, you could see how it worked, whether no, or not sure. I could make, you know, keep track of yeah. it in my head right? was my own personal problem. <laughs> right.
1: Know? For sure. For sure.
0: So, so yeah, I mean it, it, if if you grew up with it, it made perfect sense. And that's also, right. you know, where you start to learn, yeah, the Romans have a whole pile of different words for war because the Romans spent a whole heck of a lot of time right. at well, there's war. That.
1: There's that too. Right? <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, but just getting back to grammar for a second, it is true that if it's closer to your language, it is it seems to be easier to learn. Like some languages don't have masculine and feminine. So that's going to be really hard for them to take on. But we, um, uh, yeah, we don't have that in English. Come to think of it, we don't really right. have masculine and feminine English. But, uh, but yeah, it's actually I guess it's not that hard for us to learn. But like then there's some languages like German that also has neuter, you know? Right. <laughs> right. Or yeah. you know,
0: coming the other way, you know, I taught English as a second language for a while, and Ooh, cool. I taught kids who you know their native languages didn't have articles. So they were constantly leaving articles out or using the wrong ones because they just didn't make as much sense to them.
1: And articles actually are really difficult, actually really difficult to get, to get correct. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They make sense to us because they've, you know, always been there. But if you're, but this is
1: another, this is another fascinating point. If you ask somebody who's not particularly like studying language What's what's the difference between a book and the book? They'll have a hard time explaining it to you. Maybe right. you know immediately because you taught English as a second language. And I also, for a while, taught English as a second language and and am very into linguistics. So we could explain technically how those are different. But most native speakers of a language have no idea about the grammar in terms of explaining it. They just right. know it intuitively.
0: Right. And with English, English is such a hodgepodge. Of stuff that it has just sucked up from other languages, that there were moments when I would just have to look at my kids and say, Because it's English, I'm sorry. I wish I had a better explanation for you. But this is one of those things that doesn't make much sense. And it's just the way it is.
1: Right. Right. (laughs) Well, I mean, you say hodgepodge. So I don't know if this is (laughs) too much about language for your podcast. But since I love languages so much, English is basically uh, Anglo Saxon and French. Mm-hmm. smashed together because the French invaded England in 1066. And if you look at the structure of the language, you can see all of the stuff that comes from French mm-hmm. and all of the stuff that remains from Anglo-Saxon because all the stuff comes from French. It's like all of our like upper class words and yep. intellectual words, intellectual is a comes from French, right? And you can even see it in the food, right? Like, why do we say beef and not cow? For what we eat because it's la boeuf from French, right? But we say brot, bread. That's from the Anglo-Saxon, which of course sounds like German, right? Yep. So you you can see how it's mashed together. Of course, there's other influences as well, but those are the two main ones. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And then you get you know random words from Irish and you know oh, it's other really. stuff, and, All and that's where yeah. Yeah. it's like yeah, this this word has a strange spelling and the only good reason that I can give you for why it's spelled this way is because somebody transliterated it that way when they came over from wherever. Yeah. Right.
1: Or even, you know, it's it's left over from Old Norse or Mm -hmm. Old Anglo-Saxon or what have you, you know. Of course, English spelling makes no sense. We all know that. It's just totally off the wall. It's just, just have to memorize it, you know.
0: Yep. So before we get to the book, I would love to hear a little bit about your, you know, time with music labels and and working in that. Sure,
1: field. sure, sure. So basically, I went to Japan, as I told you, and I taught English for a couple of years. And as we were talking about, my creative side sort of took over. As like, all right, I want to write. So I became a journalist and a photojournalist. So I, I wrote on all different kinds of subjects. But what I most enjoyed writing about was music and film. And I had studied some film in in university. And uh, so those two loves in writing and also photography took me down those paths in um, in my career. So I basically um, wrote about music and then got involved with creating music labels in Japan. And I can talk about them very specifically if you like. Both of them are defunct now. And um, the Japanese music industry is quite different than the rest of the world in many, many ways. And we can talk about it if you like. And for a while, the labels went really well. But after a certain point, it was like, okay, this isn't so profitable anymore. But I was lucky because right around the time my labels were fading, I got the opportunity to be the Billboard Bureau Chief slash correspondent in Asia. And I did that for a long time, 13, 12, 13 years. And, you know, Billboard is a recognizable name going from running small labels. And I did report for some pretty big magazines, but I wasn't didn't have an official position. So oftentimes, like people not returning your phone calls or whatever to everybody always returning your phone calls. (laughs) That was that was great. It was a, you know, it was a, a real blessing because Billboard is such an important name in the music industry. Sure. Yeah,
0: sure got me thinking about all of those Japanese 12-inch singles that I bought when I was in middle school and high school. Oh, right. You know, (laughs) how different they, you know, it's just such a novelty to have something that, you know, it's like, oh, but it's the Japanese one.
1: Like, how different
0: was it really? I don't know, but it seemed very different at the time, for sure. Right.
1: Right. Well, as, as is probably well known, and you probably know as well, because as we talked about earlier, you know, they're very focused on work. They're very disciplined. They produce really, really high quality stuff. So that's why they rule the world in cameras and cars and electronics for so long. Not anymore. We could talk about that. But, you know, pressing a record, the quality of the pressing is really important. So their pressings were, were really, really good. And that's why they were, you know, they were valued.
0: Actually I had no idea. I always thought that there was some different, you know, cultural thing or or that it was a different mix or something like that. But I didn't realize that it was actually the record itself. That's interesting. Yeah. It tells don't... you what I didn't understand when I was that age too.
1: And it's possible <laughs> that there was a different mix for Japan, but you're talking about American artists or British artists. Oh yeah. Are, yeah. So it's yeah.
0: likely I was wrong.
1: Yeah, they're probably not different. Occasionally, there would be a a different mix for Japan. But usually, yeah, it was just the quality of the pressing and possibly the artwork as well would be different for Japan. They're trying to appeal Mm -hmm. to the market. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Right. And just to add the, the, the final piece there. So I got involved in music and I also got involved in film. So I've produced some films and I really love filmmaking. And today, it's a lot easier with video and stuff. But to make a feature film and do it properly and, you know, um, promote it properly takes so much money. They're really, really big projects. Sure. I've done it three or four times. So, Wow. Yeah. yeah.
0: So now you've got this book.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Of the, the famous Tuesdays with Maury.
1: Yes. <laughs> My dad, Maury. Yes. 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 Yes.
0: yes. Yeah. So and, and I was I was fascinated, you know, when I first heard about it because I remember Tuesdays with Maury and I read the book at the time, haven't read it since, so it's a little on the fuzzy side in my memory. But um but yeah, so so this new book is actually kind of an old book that you've revived and and it's interesting to read it because you know all of the references are from the 90s and maybe some from the 80s so had you expected to go and and do something with this book at some point all right so
1: yeah I'll tell the story so you can get the 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 idea of the flow of it so basically um I had traveled around Asia, we'll go way back to start at the beginning, and I came back to the United States in 1989, and that's exactly when my father was working on this book. He wrote it from like late 1988 until 1992. Most of the work in 1989, 90, 91. 92, he edited, well, he didn't really edit, but he collated it and tried to get it published. In any case, I was traveling around, I came back, I was living at home for three months before I moved to Japan full time. And I talked with my father a lot about his ideas about this book and what he was doing and what was so exciting for him. And, you know, that was great that we got to sit around and talk. I was living at home. I wasn't working. So I had a lot of free time. And then I moved to Japan. He continued to write the book and then tried to get it published and wasn't able to. And then developed ALS. Got sick, as is well well described in in Mitch's book. Um, did all the stuff, all the TV, and met, met Mitch. Then he passed away, and Tuesdays with Morrie became this incredible phenomenon. Five years on the bestseller list, you know, just incredible. Number one on the bestseller list, just incredible amount of sales eighteen million copies or some absurd number translated into forty languages, you know, just crazy. And um, I still was going back and forth between the U.S. and Japan, visit my mother. She, we had a house in Newton, Massachusetts, and um, she kept his study just as it had been when he was alive. And I was in there, as we've discussed, I was a journalist, so I would be writing my my um, articles. And one day I just pulled open a desk drawer It's really happened just like that. I just was like, oh, let's see what's in here. And there was this big bound manuscript with hard cover written from like, you know, the first word to the last word. Some people have incorrectly said, oh, he put this book together from his father's notes. It's like, no, this book was fully written from beginning to end. As you said, there's a lot of references from the late 80s, early 90s in there. I think actually they're still quite relevant, but we can get to that. And um, I remembered as soon as I looked at the manuscript, oh, yeah, dad wrote this and I talked to him about it. And I was really excited for him at the time, but it just languished there for, I mean, how many years would that be? 12 years or something like that. And he had been gone for seven or eight years by the time that I found the book. And then I knew, like, okay, you know, I should really do something with this But it was a really long process to to do it for a number of reasons. And of course, my mother was very heavily involved, which I can explain if you're interested. But pretty much to answer your question, um, once I found it again, I knew that I should do something with it, that my father would would have wanted this book to be published. And now we had the opportunity because of Mitch's incredible book that's touched so many people we have so much feedback from Tuesdays with Maury. I mean, I could tell you so many stories of meeting people and they find out who my father is and they like burst into tears, you know? so
0: I bet. Well, and, and I was, you know, I don't remember because it's been so long since I've read Tuesdays with Maury. If, if that book mentions the books that your dad was so well known for, but, you know when i read this one it was like wait he wrote this groundbreaking book about you know mental hospitals like really i had i had no idea so it kind of surprises me that with that background he wasn't able to get this one published when he originally wrote it
1: but mm-hmm.
0: at the same time you know i'm glad that something happened that that made it possible for it to come okay. out now
1: yeah i mean i can speak to that so first of all no mitch doesn't mention the mental hospital or any of the three academic books that my father wrote. You have to remember, they're a long time before, not even stays with Mori. they're before he Mitch even met my father. The Mental Hospital is 1954. The, they published um, uh, The Nurse and the Mental Patient in, I think, 56 or 57, and the next book was in the 60s. So this is even ten years before um, my father met Mitch. So, but you have to remember these were academic. One, they were a long time before, and they're academic works. Like true, even even if it's a watershed academic work, it's not going to sell as much as a moderately successful, you know, paperback. Mm-hmm. Academic works just aren't that good. They exist in an entirely different world, right? So, the mental hospital was this huge watershed. Um, it was used as a textbook to train psychiatrists. It was, you know, heralded as a major breakthrough. It's the reason that my father got his position at Brandeis University. He was made a full professor immediately with tenure. He didn't have to go through the ranks and be promoted. He just immediately, that's how much of a, you know, a watershed the book was, but by the light. um, 80s when he started writing this book the reason that he started writing it is that he was forced to retire in 1986 he was forced to retire so not only were all of his academic achievements long long before but he was finished or you know no longer a full professor when he started writing this book and that's a lot of what it's about this book is saying like, just because society says, okay, you know, we're not going to let you do that job anymore, doesn't mean you have to go off and sit in a corner. This can be the most joyous, creative, fulfilling time in your life. And then my father goes on to explain why. <laughs> that, yeah, he that, does. Uh,
0: and and yeah. it's, it's really, you know, I mean... Not to be totally cliched, but none of us are getting any younger, right, <laughs> and, you know, right? Right. And and so you know, I'm I'm not the age that he's talking about, but you know, give give me 20, 25 years. Sure, you know, sure. it's it's not like it's as far away as it once was. Right. And and so I'm kind of looking at it from that lens, and also you know, watching other people that I know who are at that point, and so it. It's a little, it's not like reading it when you're 25. Right and, right. and it's very interesting to see how he's broken it into the different chapters. He's kind of categorized things. Yes. And, and the examples that he gives, you know, where, where he's even talking about things like internalized ageism.
1: Absolutely. Which I
0: certainly, I don't know how much people talk about that now, but I'm sure nobody was talking about it when he was originally writing the book. It
1: wasn't, it wasn't yeah discussed very much. That's right. And that's why he felt it was so important to get this book out. And you, you've you hit on it exactly. I mean, that's the beginning. That's That's his starting point when he was forced to retire and he started thinking about things and he realized that society viewed him as an elderly person. And he never viewed himself as an elderly person. Mm -hmm. And then he realized that not only did society view him as an elderly person, but society had negative connotations with that. And then not only did he realize that society had negative connotations, he realized that he had internalized negative connotations, all these ageist, you know, tropes. And he realized he had to get rid of those. And he had to, you know, try and help other people expunge those and realize is really poisonous idea that because you're elderly, you can't do something or you're not mentally competent or whatever. He says, that's all ridiculous. And it's very much like all of the other things that we're trying very hard at this point to get rid of from our society, sexism and racism, things that say, because of some external factor of, you know, of your, of you, you're less than somebody else, which is just ridiculous or ableism any of it right we know that what makes people unique and special has nothing to do with that and has everything to do with what's inside of them right personality and their heart and their uh, you know etc willpower and the rest of it um so yeah the first part of this book is discussing ageism and trying to help people get rid of that poisonous idea he actually creates his own term which he calls age casting Which is, yeah, which hasn't been adopted, but I hope it is adopted with the publication of this book, which is how elderly people are shuttled into a role like now you're elderly, so you must play this role. But it's ridiculous. It's like typecasting an actor. It's like an elderly person can do anything, but we try and push them into these certain limited situations. And that's what he's fighting against. So that's the first part of the book, is this kind of a psychological insight, which, of course, relates to my father's background. And then the next part of the book, the longer part, of course, is about how do you fight against this? How do you live a joyous and creative life? And if you're having problems, if you're, you know, stuck, how can you move beyond that? And he gives all kinds of techniques and ideas. And since you've read the book, you know, examples and Mm -hmm. stories and poetry. It's really trying to inspire people.
0: Yeah. And, and there, you know, he tells some stories that are kind of on the sad side. And I know that they're there to illustrate like, this is sort of like what happens when yes. somebody tells you your life is over and you believe it. And, you know, sooner rather than later, your life kind of is over. And it, it's, it's jarring. I mean, I think there was one with the, I think her name was Alice, the, the therapist who was working mm-hmm. into her eighties. And then suddenly someone told her she couldn't anymore. And right. it was just, Heartbreaking. Yes, yes. You know, and,
1: well, and yeah, I mean, you know, I,
0: I don't know, because obviously I'm only me. I'm only one person. My sample size is very small, <laughs> but but I found myself, you know, imagining myself in those people's shoes. You know, what would it be like if that were me? You know, and and I think that that is a really powerful technique to illustrate those points because, yeah. I I wouldn't want somebody saying, you know, no, sorry, you've done this for, you know, 60 years, but you're done now, just arbitrarily. And I don't know that people are so much told at this point, you know, oh, sorry, you know, you're a certain age, it's time for you to retire, no matter what you think about it or how useful you still are. I don't know if that still happens to the same degree, but even so, and it may happen more than I'm aware of, but regardless we still have that that societal view that's kind of like yeah, yeah. old man you're done move on you know right. get out of the way and there right. is a time to kind of hand the baton on to others or to mentor them and he does talk about mentoring others and and that as not only as a way of of handing on the baton but of staying engaged in life and yes. i think that makes sense it's that whole another cliche, the circle of life, right? But that's how it goes.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to respond to there. First of all, I think that in certain professions, the forced retirement has been faded out other, you know, in corporations, obviously it's still going to exist and they want fresh blood. And there's not a lot you can do about that. And it is very sad when, you know, somebody is pushed out of a job that they really love also that they probably are still really good at, but you know, that that is part of society. And I think part of what my father is saying is if you experience that, look at it as a blessing that you could now go on and do other things, right? Or even do the same thing in a different way. Start your own company, you know. And as you say, there are some sad stories like that, but there's also a lot of inspiring stories. When I don't know if you got to the one of the Chinese guy who graduates university at night. And plans to be a doctor, you know. Yes. There's a lot of inspiring stories as well. And that's what they're there for to say, like, you're 72 and you're feeling old. Look at this guy who's 23 years older than you, you know. It's like that there's always a possibility. To move forward, even if it seems like there's obstacles in your way. And that that's what my father's trying to illustrate.
0: And I'm not sure if it was that same guy or if it was a different story, but the the one who decided to go to high school because there was so much to learn now that that hadn't been available. Yeah, that's a
1: different guy. Yeah.
0: And I was just like, how many people would even think about that?
1: Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. I mean, I find the stories very inspiring. And it's like, I think my father understood that. Different people are inspired, are moved by different things. Some people are moved by stories. Some people want exact techniques. How do I, you know, get to where I want to go? And he lays that out as well. So the book is so rich and there's so many different things. There are stories and poetry and lots of techniques and lots of analysis as well of, you know, we could call psychological analysis. If you fall into this rut, maybe try and do this sort of thing.
0: Yeah and I liked the the fact that he I mean he's obviously not trying to replace you know a therapist or, or any kind of situation like that but he does encourage people to reflect on themselves which I think a lot of older generation folks may not ever have been in a situation to do you know there's the whole generational idea of what therapy and self reflection is and whether or not you should do that and and i thought that was really really interesting
1: because
0: mm. you know if you've never done that before it might be kind of scary but he he gives you a little just a, just a kind of taste of it to get you started if you like it you can keep going right if it doesn't really work for you then you know there's other stuff in the book
1: exactly <laughs> exactly i mean and there's a lot to say about that because you know, therapy or whatever you want to call it, um, the psychoanalysis exists in so many different social milieus. And I'm sure there's some in this country where people would still think that's weird or look down at it. I think the urban, you know, America, it's still, uh, not still, but now is very accepted. You know, people go to therapists and stuff like that. And we can go back in history and look at what my father was involved in that. But you know, that's his field, right? Mm -hmm. Mental health is his field. So he was in what they called at that time analysis, which was therapy in the 1950s, right? When it was still extremely unusual, but that was his field. So it's not unusual that he was doing it himself. And then in the 1970s, he started a low cost mental health collective in cambridge massachusetts to bring it to people who didn't necessarily have the financial means to to get mental health help because it was extremely expensive and in those days in the idea of insurance covering that sort of thing was completely yeah. ridiculous so he started this collective called greenhouse and they would you know do all kinds of um, therapy and and sessions and it was totally on a sliding scale of how much you could afford to pay and if you could afford to pay zero that's what you paid right and that was really really important to it that was a big part of his life so he's been involved in that bringing that idea of whatever helping people with their mental health throughout his whole career and not necessarily in an academic way i mean maybe started out in an academic way but certainly moved to much more popular you know reaching out to general people
0: What was it like for you reading this book for the first time?
1: Um, Well, certainly it was very exciting. I mean, there's so many different levels to answer that question on. Intellectually, it was exciting. Emotionally, it was really powerful because you can really hear my father's voice, you know, booming throughout these pages. And he had been gone a long time when I was reading this book. So um, it was very exciting, both intellectually and emotionally. Of course, I have to admit that as soon as I started reading it, I had the idea that I wanted to publish it and that basically it was only me that could bring this project to fruition because, you know, I had talked to him about it. I was his son. In fact, my mother told me that once we first started talking about it. She said, well, this is going to be published. It's only you who can make this happen. So because I'm a journalist and an editor, as soon as I started reading it, I started reading it with an editor's <laughs> eye. Even the first time, I was like, okay, we can cut this. This is too long. So there, it, it, it hit me on a lot of different levels when I started reading it.
0: <laughs> I bet you had moments where it was like a conversation in your head. <laughs>
1: I certainly had to consider whether my father would have objected. I mean, some of the things, you know, since he wrote it over such a long period of time, some of the things were just repetitive. It was mm. odd. OK, this needs to go. But other things were more of a judgment call. And, you know, I always wonder if my father would have said like, oh, yeah, you got something important there. But hopefully not. I don't <laughs> think so. You know, Um
0: well, and you have a note at the end of the book about your mom was his one of his editors.
1: Yeah, I wrote an essay. A long time, the And yes.
0: then she also had a hand in, in some of the editing.
1: That's right. She put me on the path. We did some of the very first edits of the book. I edited the book about five separate occasions. The first run through mom helped, and she was my father's editor. She did edit all three of those academic works that I mentioned in the 50s and the 60s, and a lot of his papers, which were published after that. So she was very familiar with my father's writings, its weaknesses, how to edit them. And yeah, she, she put me on the path initially, and then I took it from there.
0: Well, that sounds like a, a, a cool collaboration too.
1: Yeah. Just just to add, I mean, since you read the essay, you'll know this, but my mother was also a healthcare professional. She worked a mental healthcare professional. She worked in the psychiatric clinic at MIT here in, in Cambridge, in the Boston area, and did a lot of research as well and published a lot of papers. So she was a very serious academic. In addition to um, seeing patients. And she worked at the psychiatric clinic at MIT when she was basically forced to retire because of age from there. She continued a private practice until she was 91 years old. Wow. So it, it fits, fits in with my father's book.
0: Yeah, it does. And,
1: and her own practice, meaning she rented the office, she paid all the bills, she had to do all the bookkeeping as well as treat all the patients. She ran her own business basically.
0: Good for her.
1: Yeah, she was pretty spectacular. Yeah, yeah
0: I, I think just based on having read your dad's book, I think he'd have been proud of her.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. And I mean, that was something while he was alive, she was working at MIT. I mean, that was something that was taken for granted their entire marriage, that she had a career. You know, she was highly educated. She had a Ph.D. It was never like she was expected to be some kind of typical housewife. That was sure. never a marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Still, good for her.
1: Yeah, yeah. I have lots of stories about my mom, actually. <laughs> I bet you Which do. is funny. Which is funny because she was a very private person. And people who know Tuesdays with Maury, the movie or the book, might notice that she's more or less absent. And that was by design. She wanted to be kept out of it. She didn't want her name to be in it. She was super happy that she took that step after it became this incredible bestseller. She didn't really want her, you know, face to be the face of of the Maury franchise (laughs) by by any stretch of the imagination. So she's very much out of it. But now that she's not here, I feel that I can talk about her career and her accomplishments, and she would be happy with that.
0: That seems fair. Yeah. Credit
1: where it's due. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have, I do have a lot of stories. I'll tell you one. So my mother and father met at the university of Chicago in the forties and my father was getting a PhD. My mother was getting master's at that time. And it was unusual for women to get PhDs at that time. The master's was like what women aim for. So she got this master's degree and she taught um, sociology and social psychology at different universities around the country at that time before she was married to my father. And she taught at Howard University, a historically Black university, which was very unusual for a white woman to be teaching at Howard in the 1950s.
0: I'm sure.
1: She had a lot of of fascinating experiences and, uh, um, you know, it was very much her orientation to try and bring education to people. Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now I'm thinking maybe you need to write a book about her.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting, interesting idea. I wonder if I have enough material. Maybe. maybe you yeah. might. Yeah, I might. Yeah,
0: yeah. You might.
1: Yeah. I put a little of that in the essay at the end of the mm-hmm.
0: book. Some of it, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So what was it like for you when your dad kind of became a celebrity when Tuesdays with Maury came out?
1: right. Right. Well, um, since I was more or less living in Japan when Tuesdays with Mori was published, I wasn't in the eye of the storm, as it were. Uh, my mother certainly got lots of correspondence; lots of people wrote letters and stuff. I-, I was viewing it a little bit more from afar, though the there was a Japanese version published, and I was on TV in Japan with me talking about it. So, I mean, of course, in one way, it was amazing because you know. It it always surprises people, especially people who are into the book. My father was not famous in his lifetime. He was not a public figure. I mean, he was an academic, recognized in the academic world. But as you know, that's an entirely different thing than Mm -hmm. being celebrity to being in the public eye. And not only that, he never saw one page. Of Tuesdays with Maury, right? Mitch didn't even start writing it until after my father had passed away. So he didn't know anything about the book. So it's kind of ironic that he posthumously became so famous and so beloved. He, I get this question a lot, he would have absolutely adored it. He was (laughs) not a shy person. He would have loved the limelight and the fact that people were interested in his wisdom. And what he had to say he would have absolutely loved that so in some ways you know it was ironic and we could call it even bittersweet that he wasn't able to experience that but of course it was a joy to create this legacy or well i didn't actually create it you know from mitch's book it was a joy to see this legacy being created i certainly did my best to push it forward um I did some TV stuff in Japan and a few other things here and there. And then after a while, you know, Mitch wrote a play and the play started to be performed around the country and around the world. Right. So I started to do Q&A after the play. I've done Q&A after the play all around this country. And in fact, in a lot of international territories, particularly China. The Chinese are very much into the Tuesdays with Maury play. I could tell you how it came about, but that's not that important. What's important is there's been 250 performances, more than 250 performances, the most prestigious theaters in Beijing and Shanghai. And it's just, it's very much, uh, you know, uh, success and highly beloved in China, which is fantastic, right?
0: Yeah. At the same time, I have to think it must have been kind of surreal, too. It certainly
1: was surreal. Well, I'll tell you the story. (laughs) Yeah, I'll tell you the story. I spent time in China in the 80s and the 90s, and I hadn't been to China for 14 years. And I went in 2012 to cover a music festival because I was writing for Billboard, as we discussed, and I was covering all of Asia. So Chinese music industry was just starting to become powerful. And um, vibrant. And the day, the night before I left Shanghai, I saw like a poster of Tuesdays with Maury was going to be performed as a play in Shanghai. And my mind was entirely blown. Like I had no information that there was even a Chinese version of the book, much less the play had been performed in Shanghai. And then I had to do a whole bunch of research To find out how was this happening and i had to go through mitch's agent who talked about how they licensed the play and it was a whole number of steps and i found the guy who was responsible for it and i talked to him and that's how in the end i did q a after the play in shanghai and beijing many many times but can you imagine you know in china such a completely different culture than ours finding a flyer uh, of a play about your father that you had no idea existed.
0: (laughs) It it seems to me like it would be an out-of-body experience.
1: It was pretty crazy. (laughs) It was pretty crazy. Like, I could not, I literally could not believe it. I mean, of course, this is long after Tuesdays with Maury is a huge hit in the U.S. and translated into many, many languages, but the play being performed in China, I had no idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure the Q&A must be very interesting, too.
1: Um, I mean, truthfully, it wasn't that different than Americans or other places. That People wanted to know stories about my father. The typical questions are stories about my father and how accurate is the play Mm. in terms of his life? And what's the most moving part of the play for you? Those are pretty much the kind of questions you get. I mean, of course, there are others as well, but that sort of span different different cultures. You know,
0: that's really interesting.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. I wouldn't have guessed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. There we go. Well,
0: since since your dad is famous for his wisdom, since that's what you've called the book and that's what he's sharing in the book. I'm wondering, you know, what what wisdom have you gained from working on this book?
1: Um. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a lot. Uh, one, and I think that it's, this has also come through with other projects, but particularly with this one. You know, if you present something that's valuable or that you think is valuable, other people will get excited and people will help you. The amount of help that I've received from people who are just doing it out of the goodness of their heart is just remarkable and it's uh you know it's been so wonderful. So that's something that uh that you know I learned by doing this project. You present something that you think is valuable and people will come to join you to do it. You know
0: that's fantastic.
1: Yeah yeah.
0: So we should all go and, and think about what's valuable to us.
1: Right. And and, and, and pursue it. it. Absolutely and pursue it. You know don't be shy.
0: All right. Words to live mm-hmm. by right there.
1: Yeah, yeah so
0: all right well we we'll put links to the wisdom of maury in the show notes and all of that thank good you. stuff so that everybody thank can you find know. you and thank you so much for coming and talking
1: oh with it's me today. my pleasure thank you so much i as you can tell i love talking about all these subjects, <laughs> from my father to language to creativity so i really enjoyed this conversation and i would say to your listeners if they buy the book and they like it if it has something valuable for them Please write a review, either if it's Amazon or Goodreads, because the reviews are really, really important. And uh, I'd really appreciate it.
0: That's this week's show. Thanks so much to my guest, Rob Schwartz, and to you for listening. Please leave a review for this episode. There is a link right in your podcast app. And in it, tell us about a time when you were encouraged to challenge a stereotype. If you enjoyed our conversation, I hope you'll share it with a friend. Thanks so much. If this episode resonated with you, don't forget to get in touch on any of my social platforms or even via email at nancy@fycuriosity.com and tell me what you loved. And if you're feeling a little bit less than confident in your creative process right now, and you haven't yet signed up for my free email series on six of the most common creative beliefs that are messing you up, please check it out. It'll untangle those myths and help you get rolling again. You can find it at FYCuriosity.com, and there's also a link right in your podcast app. See you there, and see you next week. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners.
1: Thanks.